Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Radio Imbibe from Imbibe Magazine. I'm Paul Clark, Imbibe's Editor-in-Chief. And a few months back, when our editorial team was talking about different ideas that we could pursue for 2024, my colleague Penelope Bass proposed a unifying idea for the personal essays we run in each issue in our back page quench section. What if we approached a handful of individuals within the drinks world, professionals who spent years or decades working on the creative side, building programs and reputations, and in some cases a range of businesses, and ask them about a single pivotal drink in their career that's influenced the direction of their lives? The drink could be anything, a glass of wine that changed the way you think about wine, a great cocktail or a terrible cocktail that put your creativity in motion, a cup of coffee that made you understand the entire process that went into making it and set you on a particular path in your career. To inaugurate this series, we ask longtime bartender, bar owner, award-winning author, and spirits professional Thad Vogler about the drink that led him to where he is now. Thad's the proprietor of Bar Agricole, a bar, restaurant, and bottle shop now in its second iteration in San Francisco. As readers of his book, By the Smoke and the Smell, might remember, Thad's not only an accomplished bartender with deep respect for classic formulas and approaches, but he also has a sincere appreciation for spirits that demonstrate a true relationship to their places of origin and their manners of production, and somehow reflect a kind of agricultural authenticity. We talked about several possible drink candidates that influenced his career path and landed on one of his own cocktails, the Single Village Fix, as a drink that helps summarize the factors that have influenced him and led him to where he is today. For this episode, we're chatting with Thad Vogler about his quench essay in the January-February issue and about the Single Village Fix, the drink that, in its way, set him on his current path. Dad, welcome to Radio Imbibe. Hi, Paul. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Absolutely. And, you know, thanks for joining me for this. I wanted to have you on the podcast for a couple of reasons. First, because I always love talking to you and I look forward to any opportunity to do so. But also, more timely, we've had you in Imbibe a number of times over the years. But for our January-February issue that's that's out now, you make your debut in our pages as a writer, for which we're very appreciative and excited. And the piece you wrote for us, it follows a theme that we're going to be coming back to again and again over the course of this year, and that is asking various professionals in the hospitality and bar communities to look back at their own personal histories and to highlight an individual drink that played a significant role in the direction their lives and careers eventually followed. When I asked you about this, you had several suggestions, and one of them, the one we wound up following, was for one of your own original cocktails, the Single Village Fix. As you surveyed your options, what were some of the other contenders, and why did you choose to go with this one besides the fact that I said, oh yeah, that'd be good? First of all, great to be here with you, and I also am excited any opportunity to talk. The two other main candidates were um, Agricole Rum and uh, the Mojito, both rum you know, adjacent, obviously, but yeah, Agricole rum. Yeah. When I, a spirit, when I first tasted that kind of, uh, opened my mind to the way I wanted to think about spirits going forward, you know, in San Francisco bars and are always parts of restaurants. Um, liquor licenses are incredibly expensive. You have to have big revenue and that's often why there's a, there's a pretty evolved food component with the bar or vice versa. So it was always relating as a bartender and then as a consultant before I opened my own place, was always relating bar concepts to food concepts and um, was always seeing this sort of disconnect between these, you know, very NorCal ingredient driven farm to table kitchens and then 
what was on the what was on the back bar, which was often, particularly when I was getting getting going, which was the the, the Vodi era, where it's just these industrial produced marketed spirits that have no real relationship to uh, the food. It always felt kind of like the same the, the same bar everywhere you go. Uh, and then I mean, really, it was with Ed Hamilton starting when he first started bringing these these agricole rums in and. First time I tasted, and the sort of wild breadth of flavor, and and the realization that this is agriculture you're tasting, and that was agricultural rum. And then I would indeed go on to think about you know spirits as agriculture, you know, for the next twenty years. So that that was a big deal. And then almost duplicate of of the idea I had for the single village fix was I spent like eight months in Cuba, went to Cuba like four times between two thousand and two thousand three, culminating with a. Uh, an eight month stay. And then that was sort of, had just finished bartending in the 90s where it was vodka and mojitos. And the mojito was this horrible thing that we were all tired of. And then kind of getting reacquainted with it as this really simple elemental mixture of um, of very simple components. And, and also it ended up being a tool when I got back from Cuba that I used to teach bartending where it'd be like, because the um, the mojito contains everything it contains a neat spirit it contains a simple sour and the version of the daiquiri then you're adding a little bit of uh, seltzer which makes it a collins and then you're augmenting it to make it a you know a bittered collins and then you know another aromatic component so you can sort of work through an evolution of five or, or six drinks in teaching this one drink which also has sweet sour bitter yeah effervescence talk about dilution anyways just became a really cool tool to teach bartending um, and a drink that people under underappreciated but obviously when you get it just right and it's just like kind of painfully acidic and effervescent and that that dash of bitters that I didn't understand until uh, much later was an essential part of the drink it just like it's really a cool if you master that drink and love that drink there's a certain humility and a certain skill that that I think you're going to come out of it with Right, right. And, you know, so, so we landed on the single village fix is the direction to go. And for those who, who are listening who may have lived a sheltered life and have somehow not come across a single village fix yet, just briefly tell us what's in it and how is it made? Yeah, it's, it's uh, basically it's a tequila gimlet with uh, <laughs> mezcal. It's called the single village fix because you use single origin mezcal if you can. And then it's sweetened with pineapple gum syrup. And it's an homage to a tequila gimmick, but also to a Bay Area, one of the Bay Area kind of classics, the Pisco Punch, which was um, sweetened with pineapple gum. And and I'm happy you landed on this one because, for one thing, it's a great cocktail. I've loved it ever since I first heard about it and eventually had one many years ago. But it fills a very particular role in the cocktail world and in drinks history. For, for the piece in the magazine, you traced these two themes that kind of intersected in this drink. And I'd like to talk about each of those individual bit. First off, can we look at this drink from a classic cocktail perspective, looking simply at the formula and, and the foundation of it? How and where does it fit into the cocktail universe? Yeah, I mean, it's a sour, right? It's a, it's a simple sour, which the universe that contains a gimlet and daiquiri, you know, sweet and sour with a base spirit. Um, so that's sort of one of the main ways you're going to ingest spirits and one of the main ways in which you're going to serve them. So yeah, there was like you say, there's an untold number of this simple drink, and there wasn't a standard that contained um, agave-based spirits. So 
basically 15, 20 years ago, everyone was sort of in you know the Renaissance. Everyone was was going through all the old books and trotting out all these old drinks, and you, you sort of realize, wow, there's nothing really that hasn't been done. But then there is a vacuum where there are spirits that weren't you know in, in heavy rotation hundred years ago. So like you say, there is kind of a, a vacuum where agave spirits were concerned. So it became really fun to just sort of plug those into old recipes, and that's all making drinks is obviously you, you know it's a, a shell game. And one of the things I love about this cocktail is its brute simplicity. You know, it's, as you said, it's a three-ingredient cocktail. It's a simple sour. It fits into the simple sour family. And if you took this formula and just kind of like slipped it into the pages of a 19th century cocktail manual, it would feel right at home. You know, before we get into the mezcal, can we talk about the pineapple syrup for a moment? Because in that classic cocktail canon, how does this ingredient fit into the story and kind of have that through line from classic cocktails of the 19th and early 20th centuries? Yeah, so, I mean, fixes were simple sours sweetened with a component that had a fruit aspect to it. So I think that's the beauty of drinks and recipes is there's no one rule. You know, even Dave Wondrich would agree that you can sort of get 90% of the way there, but there's always going to be exceptions or people that took things to mean something else. But but yeah, so a sour with a, a fruit syrup, very often pineapple in recipes. So um, that would be a fix. We had been trying to make pineapple syrup on my own to do pisco punches and then jen Kalyao, a friend whom you know obviously uh she was simultaneously starting to uh fill a need in the market with these these really simple uh traditional syrups that were showing up in recipes so a gums a gum syrup and a grenadine and or jat and stuff like you know reading all of these beautiful recipes and then at first everyone was making all of the things themselves and jen sort of hit timed it perfectly because like look it's good to have some we don't distill our own spirits we don't have to make all of our own ingredients she kind of satisfied that need in the market she and i were working together with eric adkins over at um slanted door and got to taste through demos of that syrup and so that was just kind of hitting the market so it was like it's perfect to kind of roll that in to that recipe this is where the contemporary cocktail renaissance comes into play uh, because it brings it very much into this time and place in San Francisco in the early 2000s where you're working with Jen, you're working with Eric at Slanted Door, uh, you're opening a Beretta, and it was at a time of this kind of very dynamic mode in San Francisco, in the cocktail world overall, but San Francisco, there was a lot of cool stuff going on at that time. And, and you mentioned this in your article in terms of the number of people that you were working with at the time. Paint a picture for us for people who didn't have the fortune of being in San Francisco drinking in bars at that time. What was the culture and what was the, the kind of creative vision going on at the time? San Francisco was starting to have its own awakening. Some people were going to New York and coming back and taking ideas. And we were just sort of coming out of a, a kind of awkward early renaissance where everyone was kind of making these these farmer's market cocktails where they'd, they'd, um, they'd get these, you know, just the mixing glass would just have like her herbs and fruit and People were muddling a lot. Dave Napole was Mr. Mojito, and he was selling these big baseball bat mojitos. And people were still kind of stuck <laughs> in 90s drink making and this idea of like, you know, farm to table drinks or, you know, farm. Yeah. So this it's kind of cringeworthy. You brought the whole farm to a farm yeah. to table drink. You you had everything you could cram in. And it yeah. was so, the, so as you went to like milk and honey and, and really like austere, you know, purest places, and you're like, oh, God, right. These are just little, little flavor explosions, two, three, four ingredients, very traditional, very humble. You know, no one's trying to 
reinvent the wheel, sort of that started to inform San Francisco, uh, attention to good ice, making drinks not over diluted, smaller glassware. So right around then that that kind of cross-pollination was happening and Todd Smith and Ryan and John Sandra all left um, Bourbon and Branch, which was sort of the great cocktail bar, but it was still, they did, a, they did a market cocktail every day there. I worked there for a bit and we'd run across the street to the liquor store of the Tenderloin and like grab a bottle of mango juice or something. And everyone was sort of surrendering to these new books. All these reprints were hitting. So I think that we were trying to kind of honor this old new sensibility of these simple, simpler drinks, like you were saying, canonical drinks. And the other thread that we wanted to follow, you you brought it up just a moment ago, is that of Mezcal, uh, which is funny in a way that we're talking about this as a contemporary touch to the cocktail, considering Mezcal's extensive history in Mexico. But in the first decade of the 21st century, we were just kind of discovering this stuff for the first time in the U.S. For sure, yeah. You know, in, in the 90s, when you'd bartend, there, there were a couple of cachasas, and there were a couple Mezcals, and they were terrible, right? And yeah, so there there's just an idea that mezcal was bad tequila. And then, you know, again, it's, it's importers are so often uh, underappreciated as people that shape the culture. But, but Ron Cooper, of course, you know, right, you know, he starts to bring in these mezcals, you know, these beautiful small batch coming out of terracotta stills and, you know, just, just really, again, have a beautiful sense of place, like these, these amazing spirits that really like change your, your understanding of a category. So the, the arrival of that stuff very much like the arrival of agricole rum, you know, these better based spirits are hitting the market. So Ron was sort of really just starting to to take over with those. Yeah, it was a cool moment. And I think I think that's definitely the point of the choosing that was just to say, I don't know, you look back and you think about your life and, you know, you remember what I, I never thought I was going to be a bartender for God's sake. You know what I mean? And you realize how little agency you have in your life, you know, like what you end up doing is totally bizarre. Um, and then drinks making is the same. You're just, you're just a small player in, in this, you know, the juggernaut of history. So all of these things are happening in the marketplace, certain kinds of ingredients, certain kinds of certain kinds of fashionability and, and, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to invent something. And in a way, it's just not possible. You're just kind of going to get out of the way and, and let things happen. You know what I mean? So that drink is like to say, oh, I invented a, a three ingredient sour with, with three, you know, ingredients that have been around forever in a, in a proportion that's been around forever. It just, it's silly, but. And, you know, you touched on this a little bit, but, but it seems so obvious in hindsight, you know, I think, well, Mezcal loves lime, lime loves pineapple, pineapple loves Mezcal. What, put them, put them all together. It's not a question of like, oh my God, this is genius. I put it together. It's like, why didn't this come up before? Because yeah. it seems, you know, it's one of those things when you taste like, this is so obviously wonderful. How is this not, how have I not encountered this before? No, for sure. I mean, we got to understand like uh, bartending and you do understand, but bartending in the nineties is just like endless vodka. Right. So the idea of a base spirit that you could taste was, you know, was antithetical to bartending. All it was was like, how do I get my medicine down without tasting it? So, you know, cosmopolitans. And it's just like the endless, endless like citron cranberry splash soda, citron soda splash cranberry, citron orange splash cranberry soda, citron, you know, like pepar with tomato juice. Like it just, you know, uh, 
absolute orange splash soda splash cranberry just like these rounds of drinks were insane <laughs> but you i mean you, you'd be you'd have a great memory you know working eight vodka vodka with <laughs> with different you know yeah the splash or the you know it just uh bonkers uh so at any rate you, you, then you start so people were starting to drink spirits that had flavor so bourbon and then wow you're interested in the base ingredient what about rye so rye i remember the point you know wild turkey three days a year made rye right and then rye just started to happen and couldn't get rye anymore because people wanted to taste the different grain right and so then you're moving from column distilled industrial rums to agricole rums or or demerara rums or jamaican rums like He's like, whoa. So so that was just a super exciting time where you're pulled into the spirit. And I think that's one way in which California, San Francisco, might might have blazed the trail a little bit more than we're interested in those 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 agricultural origins of the flavors. So like big base spirits, you know what I mean? Um, which of course same was the case in New York. But New York initially there'd just be these these beautiful they're such great bar managers also, you know, they just like, they'd use the most affordable spirits and make the most amazing drinks and, you know, really focusing on dilution and acidity and, you know, like, let's just make great drinks and, and, and we don't need to waste money on. And indeed, that's, that's, as t decades pass, like, that's the true test of a bar. You stay viable financially, you know what I mean? At any rate, so there was a kind of brand new quality to tasting these mezcals like agave is in the asparagus family. So there are all of these like green savory vegetal flavors. And then, you know, you harvest, you harvested it when the sugar, there's this accumulation of sugar before it's about to send up this massive, like palm tree size stock. So it's just packed with sugar and that's called a pina because it does look like a pina. So there's all of this sugar and acidity and green, you know, verdant, savory qualities. And it's just an amazing flavor. So pina, obviously you think, oh, pineapple. And then, so you get a sort of lock there, you know, with the, 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 the agave pina and, and the flavor of the pineapple. But yeah, it's a, it's a no brainer, as you say, but at, at the same time, it was also a really cool time. Right. And in terms of how this drink affected your life and career, you'd mentioned that this use of mezcal and, and of rum agricole as well helped kind of open the door for a more thorough exploration of the relationships between agriculture and distilled spirits. And that's a path that you obviously followed to some degree with Bar Agricole and, and your other establishments. Would you have reached the same point with Bar Agricole if you hadn't gone down these particular rabbit holes? Did it assist in the journey in some way? Yeah, totally. I mean, I was just kind of a jerk when I was I'm very generation, you know, generation X, like grew up listening to, you know, the clash and being very kind of anti-commercial divestment, you know, like, and I was always going to be something other than a bartender. I was that service industry person who's like, this isn't, although I loved service and I was nice, definitely. Like I really liked helping people be happy. And I think that's why a lot of us end up staying is, is helping someone to feel happy when they've had a shitty day or it feels good. You know what I mean? So service, you know, it is a calling. So I did like that, but, but I always thought I'd, you know, be something else. And um, then, then I just, you know, got more and more responsibility and then started determining inventory. So then it was just sort of like being at a record store and being like, that's cool. That's cool. Lame, lame, lame. And then very, 
then it was sort of like, okay, there's all of this consolidation happening around the late 90s. Producers get bought and then production is multiplied by 10 and then it's not, wow. So 10 years later, like, God, that doesn't taste the same as it used to. And so I became very sort of, it became a very kind of anti-commercial thing, you know, like don't sell out, you know, like I say, like very Generation X. And then, so this idea of what, well, what are you going toward, right? So you can be going away, you know what I mean? You can be, be, you know, raising the middle finger at the man or whatever, which that's no way to live. That's not, you have to be going towards something. So these spirits coupled with, you know, learning more about wine, learning more about food, learning, you know, coming to enjoy certain kinds of wine, you know, in the, you know, 2000, 2001, 2002, like the whole natural wine explosion hadn't really happened. It was just wine, but wine are these beautiful, simple, you know, you're really enjoying the secondary, you know, flavors of this or this agricultural crop and, and like, well, why can't spirits be more like wine? And then starting to find these more wine-like spirits, um, agricole rum, mezcal, uh, Armagnac, Calvados, you know what I mean? Like, so just, just cooler, more agrarian. Um, so then, then you start to go towards something, you know what I mean? Instead of just going, instead of just negating stuff, you're like, and people are always going to like, want to be around something positive instead of being, you know, negative. So that, that was a huge, in terms of my, that's where my career just started. I was going towards something and I was, it was like sunshine and love rather than, you know, isolation and <laughs> anger. <Yeah. laughs> and so with the benefit of time, you know, it's 2024, you're back in Bar Agricole 2.0. When you look back on, on the single village fix and that kind of thought process and evolution that was going on back then, do you still see how that kind of thinking resonates in what you're doing today? Yeah, um, for sure. It's, it's, I mean, I'm definitely like most interested in, in spirits and we have a retail label and we're doing, you know, independent bottling and in, in all categories. So still working with producers, working with importers to get really cool spirits, you know what I mean? And then, and then selling bottles, you know, as like an off license, having two liquor licenses and on and off premise so people can take home a bottle. Because I do think that everyone realizes the best drinks are simple. I can make them at home. And if I make them at home, people have no problem with like a 40, you know, $40 bottle of wine. That might be a nice bottle of wine to have at home, you know, not cheap, but not insane. And that, you know, that'd be eight bucks a drink. Right. And then, so the idea of like a $70 bottle of something of booze to take home and that'd be 15 drinks. Right. And that's like, so it becomes like a, a $5 each of the drinks you're making at home is is only five dollars so like if you're if you're going to make drinks at home you can take you can start to use a better base ingredient you know to use um some of these single village mezcals now it's just it's it's too expensive and and that that financial aspect of the business is harder and harder and harder arguably that's the art of it is how do you make the most beautiful thing for a price that people want to pay that generates revenue that will keep you afloat. And, and um, I, I think everywhere, especially in San Francisco, that puzzle is just like, it's, it's dominating at any rate. Yeah. The, the adding the, adding the, the independent bottling and really focusing on, on the spirits and continuing to write about them and stuff. Definitely. It feels continuous or contiguous with the, the earlier bar article, but 
but also a sign of how it's evolving and how it might stay relevant for longer. Right, right. right. Any closing thoughts on the single village fix or pretty much anything as we head toward the exit here? No, just, just, I just wanted to be clear, extra, extra clear that, I, you know, I didn't throw it out there as like, look what I did. It's just sort of yeah. like, it's cool the way these things work, the way food works, the way fashion works, the way it's just, there are these, yeah, these, these, these cultural currents that, that are bigger than we are, that, that we become a part of. And that was a really cool time. Well, Thad, my friend, it's always so wonderful to talk to you. Likewise. Uh, thanks so much. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again, hopefully very soon. Same. Thanks so much for the time, Paul. Head online to baragricole.com to learn more about Thad's Bar and Bottle Shop and stop by the next time you're in San Francisco. And that's it for this episode. You'll find plenty more articles and recipes online at our website, imbibemagazine.com. Be sure to subscribe to Radio Imbibe on your favorite podcast app to keep up with future episodes. You can find us on Instagram, Threads, Facebook, and Pinterest for your social media needs. And if you're not already a subscriber to the print and or digital issues of Imbibe, then here's your opportunity to change that. Just follow the link in this episode's notes and we'll be happy to help you out. I'm Paul Clark. This is Radio Imbibe. Catch you next time.